Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Greg gave me that song at the beginning of the week, and I've been just kind of playing it on repeat on YouTube all week, just um, overwhelmed. And so, um, man, I encourage you, just spend some time in this week just to listen to that. Just so good, just such a good reminder. So, hey, grab your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 1, or excuse me, Judges chapter 6. We're not going to start over. That would be bad. Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. What I was thinking about, though, in God's providence, um, there has been um, really some great things that the Lord has delivered. We're going to look at it today. But one of those this weekend has been that um, my sister is visiting. And so I didn't get to say this in the first service, but she's in the second service. And she is visiting with this week. And here's what I want you to know. Um, I don't know if I have or will use as an illustration um, at some point in the future about which one of us threw the remote control at the other one and at the television, but it was her. I just want you to know that, just in case that ever comes up. And regardless of what she tells you, just know that. Uh, it's, it is a privilege, though. Um, in all of the years, she is just so angry at me right now, you can't even imagine. In all of the years um, and that I've pastored, haven't got the privilege of having my sister here for weekends. So, sis, it is, it is awesome just to be able to have you here this morning. All right, judges, I hope they gave you enough time. Judges chapter 6. We're going to start reading. Um, These first 10 verses are really the introduction to what's going to be set up for Gideon, but I know that the Lord has so much that he's going to do in and through us today. So let's begin by just reading the word together. It says this, verse 1, now the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Big surprise. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amicalites and the people of the east would come up against them. So they would encamp against them and they would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels cannot be counted. So that they laid waste to the land as they came in. That was Israel, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Let's pray and then we're going to jump in. Father, I pray that not only this morning would you begin to do a work in us, but God, that you would bring us to a place where we become more dependent and more desperate for you. Father, that as we look and we walk through, whether it's this year or the things that are going on in our lives, we will see that there is only one who we can go to, only one who we can trust, and that is the Lord. Father, I pray that you would even this morning just remove those distractions that can infiltrate uh, our minds so easily. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do as you speak powerfully, not through me, but through the word of God. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So Judges 1, once again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, here we go again. I don't know if you remember, some of you may not, but there was a movie that came out in the early 90s called Groundhog Day. You remember that? Yeah, for me, dumbest movie ever. The dumbest movie ever. If you don't know anything about Groundhog Day, here's, here's the premise of this. So Bill Murray plays a character that he's a weatherman and he has to go cover Groundhog Day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. And he shows up and what happens is, is that the day keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Now while he becomes aware that that's a reality that's happening, none of the rest of the characters seem to know that they're just repeating the exact same day. And I thought it was kind of funny the first, second, maybe third time that they do this in the movie. By about the fourth time in the movie, I'm like, oh, for Pete's sakes, I'm just wanting to shout at the screen, you're living the same day again, can't you see that? That's the reality for the Israelites. And by implication, it's the, it's the, it's the way that we live as well. Because if we think about what Judges has, has taught us, what we live often is this, is this secular pattern where we sin, we cry out to God, he delivers, and then we just seem to repeat it over and over and over again to a place where it feels like it's exhausting. So a little bit of context, what you need to know, Johnny was in chapters four and five last week, we finished with the song of Deborah, so there's about 40 years, 40 years, probably not all of rest, but 40 years where things were going relatively well between chapters five and chapter six, and then there's this introduction to what's going to be the deliverance of the people of Israel by Gideon. Now here's what's important for us to remember, the people don't know that. The people have no idea that, that Gideon is going to come along. And so when we look at this text, there's one thing that, that makes this story stand out from everything that we've encountered in Judges so far. See, when the Israelites cry out, God doesn't immediately send a deliverer to rescue them. Now he sends a messenger to confront them. Look at verse 7 once again. So when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. What did he say? He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you from Egypt, I brought you out of the house of slavery, I've delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, I drove them out before you, I even gave you their land." And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But then he lands it this way. You have not obeyed my voice. Here's the connection that the Lord begins to make. I've delivered. You still disobeyed. And then in verse 10, what happens is that they are left hanging. They're wondering, is God going to deliver us again? And I think one of the things that we need to hear, because it's definitely what Israel should have been hearing at the time, it's what we need to be reminded of. It's the main idea that I want us to ponder as we walk through this text. And it's this, that our present disobedience is to forget our past deliverance. Right? You would think that the Israelites would have started to see themselves in this cycle of disobedience. But it's kind of the ironic thing about our sin that it so often blinds us to the present reality while dismissing the Lord's past provision of his deliverance, what he's already done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about your own life for just a moment. See, when we find ourselves in disobedience, one reason, 
is that we just forgotten we've been delivered, that we're set free, that we're no longer bound by sin. So this morning, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you call him Lord, then your deliverance has already been secured. It's already been accomplished. It's already something in the past tense. It's why Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. In one of my favorite texts, verse 13, he has what? Delivered us already from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've already been delivered. Delivered out of all of the things that hold us back. All of the bondage to sin. And he's delivered us to Jesus. Or Romans 6, Paul writes it a different way. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have now become slaves to righteousness. You've been delivered. What an awesome reality that is for us, church, to just consider, even maybe as we struggle with a present disobedience. So I think the question that we need to ask ourselves before we even look into how this text can apply and and be brought to bear in our lives is, like, have we forgotten we've been delivered? Because the Israelites obviously had. I don't think they would have been in this had they just remembered. It's what God sends a messenger. And see, the reason I ask that question is because it has massive implications for how it is that we're to live in the present. Massive implications. What's crazy is the Israelites are living disobediently, yet as delivered people. There's just a dichotomy that's going on there. And how often, church, is that our exact pattern? That we live just like they do. So what is it that we need? What is it I hope that we're going to see as we walk through this text? And I hope that it's just a growing awareness of how our deliverance needs to shout into the moments of our disobedience. Not whisper. Not just remember. Not just be slightly reminded. But there needs to be a moment when the deliverance that God has already provided in Jesus Christ actually shouts into the moments when we find ourselves struggling in disobedience. So that's what I want us to walk through this, this morning. I'm going to give you uh, some points, three points, because I'm a preacher and we like three points, and I don't even know why that is. No one ever told me. We're going to walk through three things, and these three things, here's what I hope, that they shout into your heart and soul this morning. Let's look at the first one is this. The first shout of deliverance is, it makes it, is, is this, that sin seeks to devour what the Lord has already delivered. The Lord has already delivered. Look at verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amicalites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would camp against them. They would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. Verse 5, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they what? Laid waste as they came in. And then Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help from the Lord. I want to draw our attention back because there is a, a word there, the word devour, that really is a striking contrast to what has previously happened to the Israelites up to this point. 
See, in the past, they've been conquered, brought under this rule of other pagan, pagan nations. But this time, there is something distinctly different. This time, what we see is the Midianites actually are laying in wait for the Israelites to plant their crops. Then what they do? Man, they come like a plague of locusts. If you've ever been in, and, and ever seen a plague of locusts, man, they're just everywhere. They just envelop everything, and everything around them is devoured. So what do they take? They take all the food. They take all the livestock. They leave absolutely nothing. So if we want a modern comparison to that, maybe to help us understand, it would be like this. If all of the food in every grocery store was completely stolen, and at the same time, our, our total economic system had collapsed, that there was absolutely nothing left. You know what was gone? Was the very thing they needed to live. What devoured them has now left them in a place of desperation. We ask the question, how did that happen? Well, man, the text answers it. It says, the Lord gave Israel into the hands of Midian, and he allowed it for seven years. It was the consequences of their disobedience. Just ponder something with me. I want you to think. Think about the effects of seven years of living with everything that they needed being devoured. 2020 has been relatively hard, and there's a lot of things that we would say feel like in our lives have been devoured. Seven years. Seven years. Physically, everything that they would have needed to survive was basically gone. So food was scarce. Economically, they lost almost everything. I think we, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it was even barely in existence. But then it also delivers to them, man, a, a whole slew of emotional issues as well. I mean, I would have been discouraged or depressed or angry or even bitter. And then spiritually, what happens when, when this is our reality? Man, the Lord starts to feel like distant from us. And all of a sudden it starts to feel cold. He starts to feel cold and, and uncaring. To the place where we land in verse 6 where it says that Israel was brought low. That's a good way to sum it up, but it might be an understatement. Seven years of being devoured deliver certain things to our souls that feel insurmountable. But you know what? What was true for them is just as true for us. Just as true. It's because sin and its consequences bring a totality to our lives that feel like it has completely devoured us. So we ask, like, why would we ever choose that? Have you ever, have you ever looked at somebody else's life and you see that actually sin is devouring them. And you're thinking to yourself, why, why would you choose that? Why would that be the path that you go down? But they're blind to it because in the midst of that, as we struggle with our own disobedience, we're blind to what we're unable to see. That's how this process of being devoured begins to happen. And all of a sudden, our sin just has this subtle way of convincing us that we need it at the same time it devours us. You know what it takes from us? I mean, it takes the, the very things that we need for life. It takes joy and it just turns it into to misery. Misery becomes the reality of our life. Or we have angst, 
rather than peace. Have you ever felt like that where your soul is in turmoil? You wake up and you go to bed and there is nothing but this overwhelming weight on you. That's just an angst that, that you can't even adequately describe to other people. But it feels like a thousand ton of bricks that have poured into your soul. Contentment. Usually gone. Replaced by, at the very least, discontentment, if not resentment that begins to build towards the Lord and other people. And then all of a sudden, those godly desires, man, they're, they're gone. Like quicker than a 401k in a Ponzi scheme. Like gone. I don't have any desire for that. And then our hearts begin to grow cold, really cold, cold towards the Lord. There's no longer any desire for godly ambition there's no desire for the word. And then all of a sudden it starts to wreak havoc on us physically because even our bones begin to ache under the weight of our sin. You know why that's true? Because in the way that God created you, physically and with a soul, two parts, those things intersect and affect one another. So physically it affects our soul, our soul affects our body, and all of a sudden we, like the psalmist in Psalm 32, cry out like this, for my days pass away like smoke. You feel like that? Just a vapor that seems to, like, where did it go? My bones burn like a furnace in my heart. I burn in a, like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass, and, I'm, and it is withered. I forget to eat my bread like I don't even eat. And because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. He's describing the way that he physically, emotionally, and spiritually feels in the middle of being completely devoured. And you know what? When we're being devoured as well, to pull out the words of Jesus, we don't desire to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and we certainly don't desire to love other people. And that should be, that should be an alarm. It should be an alarm that rings in our souls that something is not right. When we're experiencing that, we should look and say, I don't know maybe what's going on, but, but something's not right. And then what happens a lot of times, it just drives us into a deeper place of despair. To illustrate this point, just a moment. I've now pastored for quite a long time, but from the end of 2012 to 2014, I experienced one of the most difficult and painful times in my ministry life. A difficult church, a difficult circumstances, people that had sinned against me, and they gone after my kids as well. I've shared that with some of our leaders as we're working through some things here as a church and discipleship, uh, discipleship methods that we're working on. The part of my story is the way that I got to 2014 and I just felt devoured. And what happened was, is that I began to grow cold towards the Lord. You see, at that point, I had all of the theological, biblical knowledge that I needed in the moment to tell me God is good, he is sovereign, he is gracious, he will provide. I had all of that. It just didn't make an indelible difference in my soul in that moment. Because I was being devoured. And the way that that played out was not so much against those who had sinned against me, but in turn, now how I was reacting and sinning against other people. 
my wife, my kids, people that loved me and cared for me, until the Lord graciously and mercifully brought me to a place of repentance in Dallas, Texas, outside of a, a, a convention center, where I laid on the pavement, and once again, I've done this a few times in my life, weeped not at what had been done to me, but the way that now I use that as an excuse to sin against other people. And in that moment, what happens is that in my being devoured, I realized the problem wasn't the other people's sin. It was my own. This morning, I want to ask you a question as a point of trying to bring some application to this for us. Are you being devoured? Or maybe even more specifically, where right now are you being devoured? Fear? Has that just replaced your faith? Maybe, maybe you just have anger. And it is seething, just kind of bubbling slowly under the surface a bit. For some of us, I'm going to guess that there are just things happening in secret that have brought guilt in your soul. And it actually is making you even physically sick this morning. Maybe it's a struggle with an addiction that has you miserable. Maybe some of us are just willing to at least admit to ourselves this morning that we're a different person at home than we are in public. And that double lifestyle has just left you utterly exhausted because it feels like it is devouring you. Some of us are just demanding people, like a wreck at Ralph in a relationship, just destroy everything around us. Some of us are just in a place of apathy, a place where it's hard to even care anymore. And that gets lived out with disastrous results because we don't desire obedience in the moments where we don't even care. And then, in this text, there comes something that brings for us an invitation. And the invitation is to cry out because of our sin and not just the consequences. To cry out, to call out to the Lord. Now, twice in this text, the Israelites cry out. And I don't want you to make any mistake. They were not crying out because they sinned against God. They were crying out because of the consequences that sin brought into their lives. You know why? Because it is easy for us to cry out when we're experiencing consequences of our sin. So can I ask you a question that maybe will draw some of that out for you? Do you view consequences your consequences as something you want delivered from or how the Lord is actually using them to deliver you. One of the greatest and most gracious things is the Lord brought a series of consequences even into my own life. And I'm telling you that story, not to make much of me, but to make much of Jesus. Because here's what I want you to know. Just because I get the privilege of standing here and opening God's word does not make me different than you. And in God's grace and in a moment of his mercy, those consequences brought me to a place where I sought deliverance. So you know what we need to go after? We have to start being a people who reframe how we view our consequences that we're experiencing. Not as something so much to have relief from, but as God's grace and mercy that is driving you to repentance. 
I am so fearful that the church in America as a whole has abandoned the idea that we need to live a life of repentance. Like we don't even know what that word is. What it looks like to, to see our sin and to turn back to our Savior, to turn from our wicked ways and turn to the Lord. We're not a repentant people. We desire to just keep walking on, fully involved in our sin, at the same time claiming Jesus Christ as our Lord. Man, that's going to devour you. Repentance is required for your salvation. Repent belief. Because Jesus does it all. But not only that. Repentance is not a one-time event. It's actually a growing lifestyle that delivered people belief. That they walk into. So the Lord de desires. The Lord desires your repentance. But it's also this glorious path to restoration in the now. It's an invitation for you to live into the reality of what Jesus has already delivered for, for you. Colossians 1, Romans chapter 6. What a glorious reality that is. I don't know. Unfortunately, I think in a lot of times, very often, when our life is devoured by sin, there is almost an automatic reflux that just begins to happen. You know what happens? We turn inward towards ourselves. We turn inwards for protection from what's devouring us because we're deceived that it's not the Lord. Not the Lord that we need, but it's actually us that we need to trust. That that's where our trust needs to be found. And then we go back to the word of God and there's another thing in here that just begins to shout out. And it's this. The second shout that deliverance makes is that the Lord is our defender and place of protection. Look at verse 2 again. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountain and the caves and the strongholds. Gosh, can I relate. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, part of what Johnny was even speaking on, and we were talking about the Enneagrams, just a funny, fun way to, to kind of describe your personality. And I think he talked about all of them except mine, which is Enneagram 6. I asked him a little bit later, why, why was that true? Well, because the message was for you, Enneagram 6. Here's what an Enneagram 6 loves. I value safety and security to the max. And then add a little bit of OCD tendencies, which I have. And, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating this point just to, to, to draw this out. I'm literally the guy that goes around my house every night and checks every door and knob and light switch like three times before I go to bed just to make sure that everything is safe. Don't judge me. Like, some of you are like, that's weird. Some of you are like, I'm feeling you. So it's hard for me when I look at this and they're in the caves and the strongholds and it's hard for me to criticize because here's what I do. I read this text and then I have questions that naturally come up to me. Here's the very first thing that came up to me. Well, I wonder how they protected the caves that they hid in. <laughs> Seems like a reasonable question to me. I also wonder like, I wonder if the stronghold, I wonder if that was strong enough. I wonder if they could have done something else to fortify it. Did they have a plan? Because everybody needs a plan. 
Maybe they just needed to invent a cannon. Hadn't been invented yet. Like do something in order to protect yourself. And then what is so convicting to me is I thought about the Israelites and their response, and honestly, for that matter, my own tendencies, is that the very first place they go is not to the Lord, but a perceived place of protection. See, be honest. It's a natural response. It's the natural response to our vulnerability when we're exposed. What's the very first thing that Adam and Eve do? Hide in the bushes. That's not even logical, but it's understandable. Like in the moment of our sin, when it brings about guilt, fear, and shame, it's irrational. And we'll hide in the bushes believing that we think that that is a place for our protection. There's just something about the sin that is in us that doesn't remember we are already delivered. And so what we do is we look to other defenses and safe places. What is going to protect me? And I want you to know that the Lord does not desire a new payment for sin, but an ongoing trust in the payment he has already made. Do you understand that the gospel has secured for us all of the defense and protection that we will ever need? So while that's true and while we need to walk into that time and time again, where we go says a lot about what we are believing in the moment. We become gospel amnesiacs. We forget what we've been delivered from. And that fuels the way that we begin to live in disobedience. Maybe we won't be a people that are hiding in caves, but many of the places that we look to, that we want to hide, and that we hope are places of protection are found in the recesses of our heart. I've seen it play itself out in a thousand different people, and I've seen it played out in my own heart a thousand different times. It looks like this, isolation. And if we just isolate, we're not open to be confronted. I'm just going to hide. I'm just going to get alone. I don't want anybody to confront me. I don't care that anybody has the opportunity to speak into my life. We just want to isolate ourselves. Or self-pity, my personal, personal favorite. Self-pity just says we want other people to recognize our struggles, to feel our pain, to admire us for the ways that we're enduring as we're going through all of these difficult times. Oh, don't you see how sad I am and how hard it is? You know why we do that in that moment? Because for some reason, it feels like this momentary defense that says what is happening to me is not my fault. In that moment, I can protect myself. We believe emotionally if we think that somebody else can provide what the gospel has already declared over us. Or escapism. That's another big place we go. Man, it runs the gamut. Some of us just want a vacation. I just need to escape. Caribbean and MasterCard. I can't afford it. Caribbean, MasterCard, here I come. I'm stressed. I'm gone. Some of us, it looks a little bit more serious. You know what I need? I need a new job or I just need a new city. I got to get out of this place and I got to get away from these people. And in the recesses of our hearts, we've made those things the place that we go because we begin to believe that they're going to protect us. 
I think one of the big ones is that we hide behind our personalities. We are some of the greatest actors ever. You don't have to go to Hollywood to find actors. Just show up in church on a Sunday morning. Big, boastful personalities or the introvert. Both seeking just these futile attempts to defend against the condemnation that is constantly speaking in to our life. And then where that leads to, and it almost always leads to, is self-justification. Because we're really good at defending our actions and all of the motives that are behind them. All of a sudden, what we want to do is just deflect the seriousness that God sees as our sin. So we blame shift. To where the other person is the reason we choose what we did. Their fault. And in the middle of that, we're just dismissing our disobedience as insignificant. Or at least, at least we believe it's understandable. Well, I know I'm sinning. But look what happened to me. I get a pass. So we lawyer up and we just present a defense. And the point is this. The places we go and the things we use as our defense really come down to one thing. It's who and what we trust. Are you either going to trust the Lord or we're going to trust ourselves? The Lord alone is our protector and defender. He alone is the only place where our safety lies. He alone is the only one who can truly provide what it is that we actually need. And you know why? Because he's the only one that possesses the authority and the power to do anything about it in the first place. Before I pastored, I was a law enforcement officer. One of the most dangerous calls you can ever make as a domestic violence situation. Until one day, it came to me. A knock on the station door, I opened the door. And there I was met by a lady I'll call Susie, not her real name. Who had been more severely beaten than anyone and any woman I have ever seen in my entire life. To the place where she fell into the front door. We got her some medical attention. We were getting ready to take her to the hospital. And this is the days where before the domestic violence laws had changed. And so I knew who did it and she knew who didn't. But I couldn't make an arrest unless she told me who it was. And so I was leaning over before they put her in the ambulance. And I said, Susie, you've got to let me know who it was that did this. I need the statement. I can make the arrest. I can affect change in your life. And I can protect you. And I'll never forget the response that she gave to me. She looked at me and she was what we called a frequent flyer because I was at their house all of the time. She said, Aaron, she knew me personally. I can't tell you that because tomorrow I need to feed my kids. And in that moment, although I possessed the authority and the power to make a difference in her life, she didn't believe it. The things that she viewed as her place of protection were far more important than the one who had the power and authority to do anything about it. And when we think about Jesus as our Savior and what the gospel has done and what that means, that he possesses the power and authority regardless of what you believe in the moment. Did you hear me? Those places you go that you believe are but a shadow of the real place and protection that is found in Jesus Christ.
I ask you a question this morning that I'm going to guess permeates a good bit of this room. Do the, do the accusations that are in your head this morning just say that you've wandered away? This morning, some of you just said, man, I've gone too far. You don't know what in, the, what in the world I'm in the middle of. I'm just in too deep. I'm too far gone. There's no way. Like, I come here to make myself feel better, but quite honestly, I'm gone. Or how about the consequences you're experiencing? Because they just keep coming. And you know what? They just begin to feel like just desserts for your current sin. Like, ah, I don't like it, but I guess it's what I get for what I keep doing. And in the midst of that, what we forget is that Jesus is there with all of the authority of God and with the power of the cross is before the Father. And you know what he's saying? Paid for. You know what else he says over you? Taken care of. Not guilty, set free, no longer slaves. You don't have to hide. You don't have to defend yourself. There is no need to run because my sin was canceled on the cross. It's already done. And when he cried finished, that reality was already established in eternity past for you. And when you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, it became yours. Do you believe that's the place of your protection? And if not, does, don't allow Aaron to be the one that just shouts that into you. Allow the word of God to shout it into, into your hearts this morning because one of my favorite, favorite, favorite passages is Romans 8.1. There is therefore what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What kind of condemnation is there? None. You're not condemned. That is your reality. Romans 8, 34 through 39. Paul is going to say it a little bit different. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want to pause there for a moment. I just want to draw something out. What is going on? Right now, in the middle of your disobedience, it is Jesus because of what he has already accomplished that is currently and actively interceding for you on your behalf with the finished work that he's already delivered for you. What a great reality that is, that Jesus would intercede for us. And because of that, we get the, the conclusion that we can draw because it goes on and says, if that's a reality, then who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then it gives us a list. Shall tribulation, shall your distress, shall your persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword or the sword. I mean, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 the word of God says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What? Through him who loved us. For I am sure, here is the place of protection. For I am sure that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. That's the totality of everything you're experiencing. None of those things, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is done for you. The gospel has sealed it. You're safe. And that means that there is no 
There is no safer place than to trust in what the Lord has already declared about our deliverance. So as we end this morning, here's what this is going to look like. I want to give you just a third way that deliverance shouts to us, but it's a declarative statement that we just need to hold on to. Because the third shout is that the Lord has delivered us to what we don't deserve. Look back at verse 9. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The Lord has delivered the Israelites. When? Again and again and again. And they weren't delivered because they anyway deserved it, because of the grace of God. The grace of God that we see in the Old Testament as much as we see in the New. They didn't deserve a divine rescue. They didn't deserve the grace of being given land that they had not even earned. And most of all, they did not deserve the restoration of the relationship with God that he reminded them they already had. When God says in that last verse, I am the Lord your God, he's evoking a covenant relationship language in that moment. He's saying, I have called you, Israel, and this morning, Christian, I have called you from the least of these into a place where you are my people because I am your God. That's why our, our response is for us to live as delivered, not disobedient, devoured people. The motivation for us to live in the present is just to remember we've already been given in the past. And that, my friends, is going to deliver us to an almost unimaginable future. We hope in future grace. We stand on the promises of God. I grew up in church, probably some, like some of you. And I heard about heaven. And I heard about streets of gold and many mansions and reunited with family and friends who've trusted Christ. Good things, true things, but not life-giving motivation. What I never heard about, or at least not a lot about, was that those things are not the point. What we've been delivered from and what we've been delivered to is the sin that separates us from a savior that the most awe-inspiring, gloriously, motivationally driving reality is that we've been delivered to Jesus. I get Jesus who I don't even deserve. Jesus who wrapped himself, listen to this, he wrapped himself in humanity. He offered himself up for sin that I deserve to pay for because of his great love for me in the end will deliver to me himself forever and forever and forever for all eternity. We will be with our God. That's the motivation that we have to live in the present. Oh, I wish that we could remember that what we get is Jesus himself. But John, when he writes Revelation 21, verse 1, reminds us of this truth. And let it just speak into your soul when it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, what? As a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The Lord has already delivered us to what we don't deserve. And forever and ever and ever, we get Jesus. Hold on to that, church. Trust that. Believe that. Allow that to shape your life. And as we go into this time of worship, help it be the thing that fuels your responsive worship. Because when we sing that Jesus has overcome, let us remember exactly what it means that he has overcome. Father, you're good to us. You're so gracious. Father, we thank you so much for the way that your word just speaks into our hearts. That you remind us what you have accomplished already and that you have delivered for us. And God, I pray that that would just fuel our motivation to worship and to love you in ways that perhaps we have not felt like we're able to even in these last several days or weeks or months. Lord, stir our affections for you. Remind us of your great love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.